When I first started, it was like three or four people working in there. They're all seniors that year, and uh, and they're in a small little like it's about the size of two parking spaces in the back of a parking garage at Occidental College. And uh, my first entry into it was writing a grant for them. Actually, I wrote the grant that would expand the space like double to triple it. it now it's like six parking spaces wide, uh, so it's a lot more space, uh, a lot more to work with. At first, it was like really crowded. And so after that, I went on to become the manager of it, and we did a lot of different things, a ton of different things. So for one, we hired a lot more people as the whole program grew, and like went up from four to eight people, and we were open one day for two hours, and eventually we opened two days for a total of eight hours. Um, and so what we do basically is uh, we rent bicycles. Well, we loan bicycles out to students for free, and we provide free mechanic labor and give really cheap or free parts to everyone we can uh, just to make bicycles work. It's not always the most uh, high-quality bike mechanics, but definitely your bike is running, and uh, it's good. And the bikes that we rent are really high We rent out public bikes. So we have a fleet of 20 now. So a year after, I was there for about a year or so, and then we got a... Sorry, no. Right when I was getting there, we first had a... 10 public bikes that we rent out. We're still working with it, whether it be, you know, one day or a week before I was working there when we got those. Before, it was just a bunch of used bikes, and that, that didn't really work for us because they were they were always breaking, needed a ton of maintenance, and uh, it's hard to keep track of them because they all look different, and so immediately we got 10 public bikes. They're all bright orange, and so it's really easy to see. They're really pretty. Um, Eventually, we also decided that it would be best to run it out for a week at a time. One day was kind of too fast. We couldn't have staff on there. Also, the students kind of, it's better if you got it for a week at a time. Uh, and that's what we decided to do. And there's a lot of work we did, figuring out how to get kids to return it, uh, how to get them to lock it, how to get them to ride it safely, uh, having them wear helmets, having them use lights. And so a lot of my job was also getting all of these things, so I applied for a lot of funding. And, uh, and Oxy's really great about the funding. It's one of the best opportunities at the school is how much funding they have for sustainability programs. They have this fund called Renewable Energy and Sustainability Fund, which actually comes off all the students, I think my freshman year, uh, we all voted on increasing tuition by $10 each and then putting it into one fund. So that uh, about 2,000 students, there's $40,000 a year. Um, is $10 each semester. Um, and so that's $40,000 to any funds. It's a brand new fund. So I just was lucky that I was timing it, and I had that, and I just, I must have got $20,000 from that fund by the end of my couple of years as manager, so they're really supportive of, uh, they paid us all wages to work there, uh, they bought us all the bicycles, the parts, the helmets, the locks, took care of everything, um, it was it was really incredible to have that there. Um, some of the other things we did, uh, we had a lot, of, led a lot of uh, educational programs, was a, became a bigger piece, so the first one we did was called Build a Bike, and so we, me and a couple other people, we built a bike completely from scratch, every part separate, got an empty frame, put every single part on the frame, bought it all separately and used, um, a lot of it in conjunction with the bike oven, uh, but also in conjunction with the bicycle kitchen, TV bike, and uh, BC Libre Day. Um, being with the bicycle oven, just because they're so much closer um, than anyone, just have so many parts there, and, uh, and our friends are there. Um, and so we invited students in, we showed them how to build an entire bicycle, let them build the bicycle, introduction to mechanics. So that was the first, lasted about a semester. Um, 
It was okay, but we kind of refined our, our workshop and program the following year, um, and we didn't focus on all the parts. We just focused on the basic parts, like how to fix a flat tire, how to fix your brakes, how to fix your gears, um, and maybe there's like an ABC, like a, then a, a larger general maintenance. So it's like four or five classes. But stuff that people will be doing, not everyone needs to know how to build a wheel or, or fix a bottom bracket. They can just bring it to us, but it's good to know how to fix a flat. Um, and then... The third educational program we did was actually with a, was with a larger group called Movable Parts. Uh, you might see them at Sick La Via on occasion. It's headed by Wendy Sue. Um, it's really great. That's more on the engineering side of things even, but it's a, we got these bicycle-powered hub, or sorry, these, these power-generating bicycle hubs um, that you can put on the rear wheel. And so the, we had some electrical, professional electrical engineers that Wendy is uh, friends with come in and... Uh, and help us set it up, but they taught us how to do it. So it was great because we got to involve the physics students then with the bicycle community. Um, it's actually kind of a rare mix. Um, so we had them, we had the workshops coming together, and they would be workshops either from, like, how do we get a bicycle in this stand, the wheel on it, and, like, the right kind of chain tension actually outfitting the bicycle for this, and then how do we set it up to a power grid uh, to, so that it generates power, and then what are we even going to do with the power? Um, so we did it into a, a really cool thing, actually. It was a DJ booth, but then even more than that, uh, we put all these sensors on the bike, and we used an Arduino. And so Arduino is like a little mini computer, and um, what I understand, I have a really bad understanding of uh, electro, uh, I don't know, electrical engineering. I'm really bad at it. But anyways, I learned a little bit from this. And what we were doing was these sensors could sense, you know, how hard you're gripping something, how hot something gets, uh, kind of stuff that's in your iPhone, you know, basic pressure and, like, accelerometer, uh, or maybe we could measure RPMs, and uh, and the Arduino would just track all of that information and just log it into a computer. And then, so you basically just have a set of data on your computer that's going to range, and you can control that set of data by riding the bicycle, um, which was stationary. I could put it in a bike stand, so it was stationary, but, yeah, you'd ride it. And, uh, and with that information, we actually made music from it and so we put it through a program and put it through effects and so actually by riding the bicycle you're making your effect of the music and it was cool it's the, the musical representation of riding a bicycle and uh, I mean the the possibilities of that kind of technology are endless make it into video and have different shapes and colors change as the data points change uh, literally endless and so that project's still ongoing there's still a lot of people building that uh, do you have examples of this music anywhere? Yeah, check out movableparts.com, movableparts.org. I'm not sure which one that is. Um, you check out Wendy Sue. Uh, talk to Carrie Sargent, who is at Oxy. Um, but uh, Wendy Sue now actually works for the city, which is great. I think she's uh, she's one of the directors in the, in the cultural affairs or in charge of public art. I, I forget. She just got a job at the city. She was a postdoc over at Oxy when I was uh, going to school there. Um, that was pretty cool. Uh, I guess the last piece that, or maybe I had so much in between, but uh, another thing we did over there was events, and so we held art events at uh, the bike cage, or we held one pretty large one, actually. Uh, we got about a couple hundred people out. We had live band, lots of food and refreshments, and then uh, art from all around the community. Did you say what bike cage is already? Is that the Sorry, name of your... bike share. Bike cage is uh, is what we call it, because it's, like, it's like a you're inside a parking garage, and there's these big, tall metal fences. It looks like you're in a cage. Um, and so the program officially is called Bike Share, but more colloquially, we call it Bike Cage. Um, and so, sorry, so over at the Bike Cage, we run these events, and they might be small, you know, only 10 people. Uh, we always have art up in, the, in our space. Um, 
But there's one big event we did at... Uh, some of the art students help us organize it. Margaret Gallagher, in specific, is a really great local artist. She uh, she just graduated from Oxy with us, and uh, she curated the show. Um, and it was great because we had community members and Occidental students uh, in the same art show, and then we had a bike oven, uh, brought a lot of people over, and then we had LACBC did bike ballet for us, and just did a lot of outreach in the community, just was able to actually kind of garner a, a really big event and, and gathering, just uh, cool for actually have because it doesn't always engage the community, uh, or it can, but this is a good opportunity for the bike scene to do that because uh, we're so new and it's kind of good involvement to have. So how long has it been has, has it been around now, this, this bike show? Three or four years. I started, no, maybe almost four or five now. I, I guess it started, uh, I don't know if it was my first or second year, and, I got involved there my second year, so it had been a year. So it's been about four and a half years now. Is it, uh, is it is there a point at which it can be self-sustaining and you no longer have to keep writing grants and, and, and all that? I mean, because people pay to borrow the bikes, No, right? everything's oh. free, actually. Oh. Uh, so no, that no, it would just be grants. I actually think they're, they're working on becoming part of a student service. So first it was a student project, and uh, which I like to do is completely student-run. We had a faculty advisor, um, which is Mark Valianatos, um, which is she's also really involved with the bike uh, community. Uh, he's a UEP professor there. But, no, we want to keep it free because we don't want anything to be economically barring to anyone. We want everyone to be able to use a bike whenever is what we're really supportive of. Um, and we're willing to work with anyone on that. Cause that's kind of the entire point. Um, and so becoming a student service, that's what they're doing now. And so I'm not really involved anymore now that I've graduated. Uh, but from what I've heard is now they can get new sources of funding. They won't have to apply. It'll be automatic. Um, It'll be much like the student government or um, a couple of, there's like the campus television network, there's a, an events council, and so all them, all these groups automatically get funding. And so if they get accepted, they will automatically get funded and uh, be kind of legitimate. No matter what, the bike share will continue to have to like depend on the students uh, to always apply for the money. Um, but either way, the Renewable Energy Sustainability Fund, that's also all student-run. Um, there's also faculty advisors, but all the student body is really behind it. Everyone likes it. Uh, I mean, there's nothing to not like about it. You get free bikes. We have fun events. We have fun rides. We give you free food and art and anything. So, is there a website? Um, no, there's a Facebook. You look at Bike Share, Occidental Bike Share is probably um, that. Otherwise, I think they're open uh, Tuesdays and Fridays uh, from 2 to 6. And uh, you can go by. I'm sure they'll fix anybody to use bike for free. I don't think they can rent you a bike without an Oxy ID, but um, it's a fun place to hang out. It's kind of kind of like the bike oven works. Is that you know it's both the social hub and actually like a positive like workspace. So it's also kind of a bike collective. It's like one of the the, co the collectives. Very much so. We were close. So we're all close friends who were working up there, and it's nice that uh, I kind of got to work with that, and uh, and I worked a lot in the hiring too, and kind of figuring out who should work there. Um, and because it really works best when we're all really close with each other and we're working as a collective and we all have the same goals. And it's good that most bicyclists are all kind of working for that. You know, we can work to improve on-campus bicycling is a huge thing. You know, how many, uh, how many bike racks there are on campus. There's not even close to being enough, especially as the numbers are growing. Um, access to these kind of maintenance tools. So another project we did was... Uh, installing a fix-it stand and so fix-it is a company and they make this all kind of encompassing bicycle stand that can be put outside so you just like a, a big bicycle stand that you could mount lift your bike up and hang it in and then there's a bunch of tools that are 
chained to it. It's got these little kind of wires. And so all the tools in a pump. And so 24-7 you have access to a pump and tools on campus, uh, which is really great. So having those kind of opportunities. So really, I mean, the bike cage kind of serves a lot of purposes. One, loaning the bikes. One, doing maintenance. But then uh, also as an advocacy group, um, so both on campus and off campus. We were pretty involved with the, the bike lane public hearings for around Northeast LA. And so we would always get together a group of kids to ride over to wherever it was. A couple of them were at Oxy. And so um, we could build support that way, too, and get more people out there leaving their public comments and demonstrating support uh, for actual more bikes in the community. Cause, uh, so are you like basically training a future generation of leaders in bike advocacy? So what we're trying to do, I'm happy to see now that I've left that it's still going on. Because like for a while when I was starting, uh, I, I don't know, I do so much work on my own. But I was really passionate about it. And a lot of other work is kind of boring sometimes. You know, like applying for grants isn't always fun. Calling people to make sure they return their bikes is never really that fun. Um, a lot of bike mechanics and the parties and like events and stuff. Yeah, that, that's fun. All the art and uh, building community, that's really fun. But um but it's nice to see a lot of kids have taken leadership. I think that's partially due to uh, Oxy's mentality. It's it's a really uh, active population. And so students are always trying to get involved with something. And uh, the UEP program over there is uh, Urban and Environmental Policy. Um, is, a, is a really big growing program, um, which is what I studied there. And, uh, and they do a lot of focus on community organizing and community advocacy and being community leader. And so, a lot of kids who work in the bike cage are also UEP majors, um, but there are, there are geology majors, Spanish majors, English majors, from all sides. Because you know, most people can unite around bicycling. Most people are at Oxy are uh, are conscious enough to know that it's really good for the the environment. It's really good for the city. It's really good for yourself. Um, and Oxy is just kind of a, a tool to really improve that. You know, they, like for example. Funding is important, and if you want to put more bike racks on campus, totally have to go do that. You just have to talk to a couple of the right people and get the money and then just be on it because, uh, I mean, those changes are very possible. I Clearly, I mean, I just apply for money as easy as that. Once you have the money, then people don't really worry about it that much anymore. They're, they're, everyone likes more bike racks. So it's not an issue with it. Um, so it's little things. It's uh, uh, cool. Oh, Why are you here at the uh, Flying oh, Pigeon man, I'm here today because my bike got stolen this morning, actually. It was a tragic morning, it was. I walked out, I was about to go, I was about to bike over to the bike cage this morning. I haven't been there in a while, in months, and uh, I was going to install, I got this brand new, uh, cool front rack, it's a portier rack, it's really pretty, and I was going to go install it on the front. Thank God I didn't install it on the front yet, though, and uh, walk out, and this, uh, this snapped, I mean, like, I had my bike, it was locked up to like a, one of those steel kryptonite cables was wrapped around a post, and then I locked it to that steel kryptonite cable, and I cut that cable, took my bike. Uh, so bad, it's too bad, but I figure, I don't know, I was, that's what I'm doing, I'm shopping now, see what else is out there, I, think, I don't know, I carry Linus's, I work at Linus now, um, you what? I work at Linus Bikes now, and oh, so... Okay. Maybe I'll get something through that, but I don't know. I'm trying to think now. It's a good opportunity, is what I was just telling Joseph, is Black Friday's right around, around the corner. So if I'm going to buy something, it's actually a pretty, it's a pretty good time to buy something right now. <laughs> well, I'm sorry for you. I'm sorry about your loss. Sorry for your loss. <laughs> Thank you. We can all go into a moment of silence. <laughs> I'm a morning. <laughs> There's a lot of that going around.
There is, actually. Working a bike shop, like literally probably a couple times a week someone comes in and says yep. their bike's stolen out of their other own backyard is the most common place, too, from what I've heard. So, just like me, so I should have I seen it coming, but... Um, oh, well. Did you lock it up wrong? No. Well, and... Or they cut the... You know, they cut... Someone physically cut a chain to steal my bicycle. And so... I mean, people so can... have equipment. Yeah, I mean, they brought bolt cutters into my backyard while I was sleeping and stole my bicycle from me. So, it's, it's pretty messed up, but, uh... It, there's no there's no right way to lock a bike. There's only safer ways to lock a bike. You know, you can buy an angle grinder and cut through any of your New York kryptonite locks. Um, you can... You have bolt cutters and cut through a smaller one. It just depends how much effort that other person wants to go to. It's not even that valuable of a bike. Like it's hardly even worth it. It's like five years old, like an old steel frame bicycle. It's pretty janky, actually. But but it was my bike, <laughs> and it had a lot of love in it more than anything else. And uh, that's why it's a little sad. But memories. A lot of memories. But now it's a new beginning. So we'll see. Well, it's great to hear about your work, what you've done. Are you, are you, and you're still working in bikes, in the world of bikes? Yeah, I am still working in bikes right now. I work with Linus over in Venice, uh, and that's really fun. Uh, but kind of looking more forward, uh, I, instead of doing business, I'd rather do more political advocacy, actually, is what, uh, what I did at Occidental, really, more than anything, uh, with that bike sharing kind of a... So right now, I'm hopeful, hopefully I work for the L.A. River, actually. something I'd really like to develop and, and develop that park space around it. Um, and, you know, that bike path is incredible. There could be so much more going on with it. But I think it's like bikes just fit into a larger part of that system, of like that greenway system. Um, and the river just offers that opportunity where you can have a bike path going down for... You could have a bike path all the way from the valley to Long Beach. Um, and you could have parks the entire way for people to kind of engage with nature, um, which I, I think is valuable. And it's, oh, you know, it's, it's better for the city. It's better for the earth. It's better for people's own bodies. Uh, it's good for families. It's good for education. I don't see anything wrong or I don't see anything bad about uh, putting more park space in that. I, I think just bikes go hand in hand with that. Uh, and so uh, that's what I'm looking to do as I look more forward. Very cool. Um, so I will expect to see you with the, uh, what's that group called that, that works on river issues? Oh, Folar is one of my yeah. friends of the Los Angeles River is who I really like. That's like dream job at this point, but uh, we'll see. Uh, there's a lot of time. I'm only still saying, I'm still calling myself a recent graduate, but I don't know how much longer I get to call myself a recent graduate. Uh, how long has it been? Six months. I'm just still barely there. but uh, another, it's another year and a half, I think. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Uh, for now, I, I'm happy with Linus Bikes, too. You know, it's nothing wrong with working at a bike shop over on Venice Beach. Uh, it's a pretty yeah. nice place, and we work on these beautiful bicycles. They're sleek and fun to work on, uh, good people over there, and so uh, I'm super happy with where I'm at. And if you're looking for Linus in Highland Park, you come to... The Flying Pigeon LA is where you would come to, actually. I have people coming over there. It's actually, of the one shot that people mention, other than when they come into ours, I've heard Flying Pigeon mentioned several times. They're famous across the city. It's good. Um, they have these special, special Dutch bicycles, which are what are perfect for the city, really. They're, they're made to be city bikes and made that way for generations and generations. Linus is just one brand of the city bicycle, um, but Joseph has dozens here.
Okay. Well, I hope that people come and uh, and look you up, and you'll hook them up with like a free bell or something if they buy a bike or something if they mention Bike Talk, right? Oh uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, free bell. Free bell. Just yeah, ask uh, for Jack. Was <laughs> oh, that oh, Jack? Okay, Jack. Thank you. No, thank Talk you. Much. I appreciate the interview and uh. Be on bike talk. It's big. Yeah. I came in here. Look, it's not so bad. My bike got stolen, but now I'm famous. Hollywood, here I come. Like, <laughs> or Folar. <laughs> Folar, that's what the goal is. is a professor at San Francisco State University in geography. Jason. Hey. That's right, isn't it? Yes. So where does your field intersect with, uh, you know, bikes exactly? It's uh, a really good question. So geographers are interested in spatial interaction, uh, in human environment interaction, and myself, I'm particularly interested in uh, the geography of the city and particularly the geography of our transportation, so how it's laid out, how it's organized, but also uh, what what geographers are very interested in, and there's a subfield within geography that, uh, for lack of a better word, is is called critical geography. And so where where I come into this is looking at not just how urban space is organized, but who decides and mm-hmm. Why were those decisions made? And where that takes me is culture, politics, uh, debates over allocation of street space, which is, I guess, that would be my my entry point into uh, mm-hmm. thinking about bicycles, but also public transportation and automobiles and walking and whatnot. Uh, but the the way streets are allocated the 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 way we decide the lanes uh where there's parking uh who has access to the streets curb cuts that that, that are the entrances to driveways and and parking cuz parking is a huge uh sub issue if you will of the whole built environment that is often understudied but um so my my research which I've come out uh, uh, recently with a book called Street Fight, The Politics of Mobility in San Francisco. It's basically looking at all of these debates about the street, so how transit is uh, handled in the streets and how bicycles are handled in the streets and, and how automobiles have had this 
century of hegemonic dominance. And, you know, where this takes me, and I think a, a lot more, more people is, uh, when you get into the political decision making about street space, I have, uh, an interest in the ideological, uh, underpinnings of the political decision. So I'm interested in political ideology and street space. I, and I can, I can just give you a, a, a quick sort of synopsis of, uh, or a simplification. Um, if we think about the automobile broadly and how it should fit into the city, uh, there's, there's multiple ideological and philosophical perspectives about that. But in our urban politics, there's really three dominant ideological perspectives. And, and this holds for, I think, San Francisco, some previous work that I did in the Atlanta area, Los Angeles, uh, New York, wherever. Um, and the, the, the first is that there's a progressive uh, ideological viewpoint, which is that because of the deep social and environmental problems that come from the system of automobility, the government should interact, should regulate the streets in such a way as to help privilege other modes of transportation, such as bicycling, because it's a greener mode, public transportation, because it's a greener mode, and there's also all kinds of social equity issues that go with that. So progressives generally support an active government that reallocates the street space away from, you know, this past century of um, car dominance. Now, there's also a neoliberal approach, uh, which harkens back to uh, the, uh, the liberal economic theory of the 19th century. That is, less government, more of a market-based approach. And in its purest form, the neoliberal approach uh, would suggest that the decisions about street space and about cities broadly should be determined through pricing and the market. So, uh, you know, the, the neoliberal uh, position here in San Francisco is actually uh, uh, leaning towards more biking and more public transportation in as much as it is a commodification of urban space because there's this demand, for example, of tech workers to have walkable communities and, and things like that. So there's this interesting political uh, you know, cross-fertilization happening between this neoliberal politics and some of these progressive ideas. And then at the other end of the spectrum is the conservative position about street space, which is similar to the progressive in that the government is active, but it's the government actively ensuring unfettered, inexpensive automobility. So, uh, you know, even people who profess to be socially liberal or, uh, you know, progressive on certain issues, when it comes to their car, when it comes to driving, they exhibit very conservative values um, that, you know, cars should be inexpensive, that access to anywhere in the city should be easy and convenient and high speed. And it, and it speaks to this whole 
um, you know, sort of individualist um, responsibility, personal responsibility towards one family is to to cocoon them and move them through the city. There's all kinds of ways I can go with that, but but basically, you know, just to to sort of simplify here in the book, I kind of break these down. There's you know a chapter on each, so there's a lot more to it, but. But basically, you've got these competing ideological perspectives that I think are more interesting than the individual politicians who, um, you know, come and go. But over the long term, I think it's important to look at these different political ideologies and, and viewpoints about how urban space should be shaped and who should be making those decisions through this lens of these, um, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, ideologies of mobility. Mm-hmm. So that might be a well, a handful yeah. there for you. <laughs> but no, well, it's good. It's a good handful. Um, I'm I'm thinking that well, one of the thoughts I'm having is when you talk about neoliberalism. Well, for one thing, that sounds like what I think of as being conservative. You know, let let the market decide. But in, I mean. How, isn't that kind of the way that conservatives think about it? It is. It is very interesting, but ask yourself this. Every time, uh, you know, let's invoke Shoop here. Uh, every time you start talking about pricing the car through market-based mechanisms like high occupant toll lanes or um, parking pricing um, or, or vehicle miles fee or some sort of uh, pricing mechanism... The fascinating thing to me in, in the politics is this just vitriolic opposition. And it comes often from conservative uh, voices. There's a progressive side, too, which is concerned about the social justice implications. But think Tea Party. Um, you know, their, their, their politics is that the government should ensure cheap, unfettered car use. And so it's an active government. It's not a market. I mean, it's not the car system is is, is far from market-based. It's deeply subsidized through both financial and regulatory approaches. And so uh, it's it's interesting. I, I, I think another way to think about the, the politics here is um, I'm from the South originally, Mm-hmm. And you you might think that neoliberal is conservative, but, um, you know, conservatives in the South believe in a very active government in shaping what you learn in school, for example, prayer in school, um, sex, sex education. So they, there are, there are very, there, there on, on, on many issues, conservatives actually do believe in an activist government. Um, now, they're not necessarily supporting taxes, increases that, you know, underwrite mass transportation or anything like that, but they certainly uh, also protest gas, gas taxes, you know, and, and, and things like that that you would use to uh, fund uh, transportation infrastructure. So there's, it's, it's, I, I see this nuance between neoliberals and conservatives that I think is important to bring out into the open because I see it as an opportunity to uh, distinguish the two positions and thus 
uh, it, it, it clarifies things, and I think it gives progressives who are concerned about sustainable transportation and trying to understand these political barriers. I think it, it's a very constructive, useful lens for progressives so that they, they better understand what they're up against. That it's not just one monolithic thing, but actually um, the neoliberal and conservative don't always see eye to eye, and they especially don't see eye to eye on transportation policy. Right. Uh, well, so, so then sometimes some, uh, the um, free market is actually, I mean, really the only reason conservatives don't like free market is because it pays for, like, uh, our, uh, you know, helping helping poor people and, you know, with education or with jobs and things like that. That's the only time they don't like the free market, but they like it. I mean, that's the, time, the only time they like hmm? it. was kind of broken up. I didn't quite oh, hear sorry. Uh, people like people like the free market when it's going to work in their favor. Well, um, uh, I, I mean, it's it's. I think it's a little more complicated than that. Um, but you know, the the idea that I think you know a conservative viewpoint about you know poverty, for example, is that there's some moral failure of the individual. Uh, and, you know, like they didn't work hard enough or they were lazy or, um, you know, that, you know, that, that there's something that, that, that they failed to do to be successful. And we know that's not true, that there are a lot of structural issues within society that, um, uh, you know, create these conditions. And that, that's, and, and that's what progressives are, are, are keenly aware of. But that's where you do, you know, the, it's, I think it's convenient for the neoliberal perspective to invoke that conservative. I mean, there's been a marriage in this country since at least Reagan, if not before, between this neoliberal and conservative ideology. And it's been very strong and very hard to, to maneuver around. But, but I still think it's important, especially when we're talking about debates about our streets and in our cities, that there is a distinction, there is a nuance, and that that's an opportunity to uh, to promote bicycling, to promote reallocating our streets to a more sustainable and progressive mode of transportation. But uh, in San Francisco, uh, you know, it's very different than in L.A. Do we have the same I, I don't think argument? so. Really? I don't think it's that different. I think it's of LA that have the same kind of progressive politics as San Francisco, but you got to remember that we're in a Bay Area, and when you think of us as the Bay Area, we're not that different. Oh. San Jose, but, have you spent time in San Jose? Not really. Or, or Silicon Valley, which is a very high growth part of the Bay Area. Um, you know, it's it's similar to. Uh, parts of of Greater Los Angeles. I think that that's that's one of the uh, the uh, you know the things that I've noticed in, in in this almost 20 years that I've been looking at transportation politics is that every city I go to, every city I spend time in, every city I study, you see the same progressive, neoliberal, conservative politics. There is a difference in the pronunciation. Yes, San Francisco has a longer history of 
a more cohesive, progressive transportation policy, but it's not the dominant. Um, we've got a lot of dysfunctional transportation problems, and we're hamstrung by extreme regional fragmentation. You know, we've got like I think 19 transit agencies. Um, uh, we can't even ride our bike to the East Bay over the bridge because of Caltrans, which is the same agency that you have down in LA. Um, I think that if you look at Long Beach, they're doing some pretty progressive things with bicycling, but and and even the, you know they're starting to do some things in Echo Park and downtown LA, Silver Lake, those areas. And you know, yes, they're very car oriented, but all things considered, I think the politics is similar to the progressive politics in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. It's an well, estimated percentages. Sorry. I, I was thinking that, you know, in terms of um, public planning and, and where you're going to put your money for, you know, for cars or for bikes, that just the conditions of San Francisco make bikes much more obvious place to put your money just because of how well, crowded it is. Yeah, but you see that crowding is also a barrier because what we have in San Francisco is this crazy juxtaposition where on the one hand now now right now I'm only talking about the city of San Francisco which is 7 miles by 7 miles with 830,000 people so it's a very high density uh but the density of the of the outer neighborhoods of San Francisco the Excelsior Sunset there's densities like that in in Los Angeles East LA um Hollywood uh West Hollywood East Hollywood areas the Wilshire Corridor is actually extremely dense relative to, to an, a typical American city. But um, the, 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 the juxtaposition here in San Francisco is that we have, on the one hand, we have a per capita car ownership rate of about uh, 0.5, or, or another way to say it is 500 uh, per 1,000 persons, 500, I think it's 550 vehicles per 1,000 persons. That is, uh, Western European car ownership rates. Um, in the, in the rest of the U.S., it's like 800, 700 or 800 to, per 1,000 people. Uh, but in San Francisco, we have 550 to about every thousand people. We also, if you look at it from a household car ownership perspective, um, about 30% of households in the city of San Francisco are car free. Some of them, it's an income, but there are, we probably have one of the highest rates of, um, you know, discretionary car free households. People who are choosing to live without a car but could otherwise afford a car. And that those are some important metrics. 30% car-free households and about 550 per 1,000 per capita car ownership. But then we've got this juxtaposition. Even with those numbers, we have somewhere between eight and 9,000 cars per square mile, which is an incredibly high density of motorized vehicles in such a small amount of space. We are built out 
There is nowhere to go. There's no, when you add a bus lane or a bike lane, you are taking away car space. Period. Mm-hmm. There is no other alternative. And so that actually makes the stakes much harder here. Block by block is a guerrilla war. Hmm. And the incumbent, and the incumbent motorists believe that they are entitled to every square inch of the street and are, you know, many of them are hostile. And so they fight. And we have pitched battles throughout the city over scarce space. And, and, and the thing that a lot of the car drivers don't get is that we're in a stalemate. And by doing nothing, let's say we just allow the cars to have the street space that they have now. By doing nothing, it is getting worse for everyone, including the car drivers. But if we take away car space and replace it with bus lanes and bike lanes, we make things better for bus bus passengers, which are which are a substantial portion of our city, and bicyclists, which is a very rapidly growing segment of our city. So we we only have one real choice, and that is to take away car space. But it's not that easy. Now, you go to San Diego or you go to Austin, Texas, or you go to, you know, even to the suburbs of the Bay Area, and what they can do that you can't do in San Francisco is just throw in a bike lane on the shoulder. Mm-hmm. Or or their roads have such a big right-of-way already that they got room to put in a cycle track or something. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. It's still difficult in the suburbs, too. Uh, but but I, I hope you understand what I'm saying here is that despite our high rate of car-free households and low per capita car ownership, those who have cars here are extreme in their protection of the space that they have, and there are still lots of them. So it's it's a uh, it's a very challenging city, and. Um, you know the 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 uh the politics here over cars and street space is vitriolic who's winning look at portland okay portland does not have the car density that we have portland's car density I'm going to venture to say is in the range of three to four thousand per square mile. It's like Berkeley. It's like Pasadena. It's all craftsman cottages, you know, single family homes, some multifamily homes, but and then there's this new downtown stuff, and that's all being crafted as it's built. So it's like it wasn't like there was an incumbent there and they went and took away the space, right? They're building these new high-rise developments on the south side of their downtown and on the north side of their downtown, and they're building it with the transit and with the bicycles and pedestrians in mind. Um, Who's winning? (laughs) Right now, it's a stalemate. Right now, it's a stalemate here. Um, 
there is there is a whole nother dimension to this too, which is gentrification. San Francisco is a boom town right now in terms of these social network tech jobs. And there are people coming in from all over the country and they want to be in San Francisco because they want to ride a bicycle and walk. But they are, they are driving up the rent. And so there is a backlash against livable urbanism that's complicating our debate here. So it's, it's a very messy, uh, multi-layered politics. And, and this takes me back to this ideological layout that I gave you. The, the progressive view of, of, of livability in terms of the built environment is very similar to where the neoliberals are going as well. The neoliberal view, you look at L.A., for example, you know, you've got these big developers that are more than happy to do transit-oriented infill with bike lanes. That's what attracts the new professional workers and the companies that hire them. So what you have here in San Francisco is a conflation of what is ostensibly a progressive built environment as the enemy of the working class because there's what's coming with it is displacement, gentrification. And there's this fear, which I don't think is unfounded, that the working class are being pushed into the car-oriented sprawling outer suburbs where they that, that's the only place they can afford to live. And you have something like that in L.A. That's what the Inland Empire is for the most part. Is uh, what? It's, it's poor it's people being... Increasingly where low, yeah, low, lower income, you know, families that, you know, are working class and that's, the, that's where they can afford a house is in Hemet. You know, which was ground zero for the mortgage lending crisis. So, um, you know, as a geographer, that, that's where I get into all these interesting questions like, you know, peak oil and climate change and sprawl and automobility and, um, you know, all of these things that uh, are all converging together or they're in cross currents and, uh, you know, wrapping your mind around all of this and trying to make sense of it and trying to, like, like work out policies that work is challenging. And then you've got, you know, political fragmentation of our metropolitan areas and um, and then you've got a federal government that has been basically absent from creating a sustainable urban policy for this country. Uh, so you, you know, all the cities are left to kind of fend for themselves. So everybody likes to look, I, I digress a little bit, but everybody likes to look at Portland, and I think Portland's the greatest. I spent a lot of time there. But it's it it's single-family homes, it's lower density, and it's lower density car, it's lower car density, so the stakes are not as high. When you put in a traffic calming or a bicycle boulevard or, you know, some new bikeway in Portland, you're not affecting as many car drivers per, you know, unit of the facility, per length of the facility, as you are in San Francisco. 
we've we've basically created livability in this city and overlaid it with a car oriented system. So it's really a good warning. It's a really it's a good bellwether or warning for what happens if around the country we start to create these transit oriented walkable bikeable communities that everybody's saying we need to do but we cram them full of parking and you know still accommodate cars it's dysfunctional the city the dysfunction of this city is, a, is i think is an example of uh what could go wrong having said that there the city still has huge potential um, so it's an important place to watch. Um, but I think L.A. is fascinating, too. All right. Well, um, And not so too far behind. And you got a lot more room. You know, you have this magnificent grid that covers your entire, uh, like, everything from the Santa Monica Mountains to Long Beach and from the Pacific Ocean to, like, uh, you know, what is it? Whittier or, or like uh, Corona or whatever. Just a grid, right? So you could just lay out a grid of cycle tracks and you would it, it, it would probably be a bloody mess to do it but you would not face the same density of cars that you have in LA. I mean in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. You know, per, well, um do you keep in touch with? Uh, is that what we're doing here? Is that what we're working on? What are we? Well, are we, I, w- I hope so. Um, I know that there's, you know, I, I, I my sense, and I, I don't know LA. It's the LA Bicycle Coalition. Uh, my yeah, sense LA is it's kind of work. Yeah, LA County is, is that you know it's it's kind of working where it can, like where communities within LA are supportive of bicycling. So it seems to be working from. Uh, the the center outward, sort of like the downtown and the areas that are kind of closer to the downtown and then out towards the beach and mm-hmm. and, and to the south. But you know, I and then I you know, Long Beach has got its own thing going on. It's a, a separate thing. Um, you know, it's it's impressive a little bit, but it's it's still fragmented and it's really just along the coast of Long Beach, like along the the first. You know, ten blocks from the sea, from the uh, I guess that's a bay there. But um, but I think you're you've got a, a a vibrant new movement, and I think that that one thing about LA that has struck me, and this is where maybe talking to Adonia, uh, which sheds some light, is that it is more multicultural. It seems um, in in LA that that. Uh, that there's definitely a lot more of a Latino and, and other minority uh, presence within the, at least that you see cycling, that you see biking. Um, that's not to say that there isn't that here, but there's something pronounced about it that, that I've kind of observed in, in Los Angeles. And does that make a difference in the, in the fight? I think it's important. I mean, you have... Uh, what was that mayor's name, Villa Ragosa? Yeah. He was, uh, you know, he was, he, I think, wasn't he a s- proponent of, of cycling? Yeah, mostly after um, he got hit on a bike. Right. 
Um, but like these events, like these Ciclavia events, you know, they kind of bring. It was amazing. It was so diverse. Mm-hmm. I was I was quite impressed. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing, and uh, I don't know what. So this fight um, in your book. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to think of it as, I mean, I don't know if everybody thinks of it as a fight. Is it, is it, do you think, ever think of it in terms of an ecosystem? An ecosystem? Yeah, like cars and bikes trying to compete for the same resources? No. I've never thought about it that way. Oh. No. Okay. Well then, then ignore that. I, I, you've piqued my interest. If, if 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 you can point me into something that I could read that would uh, elaborate on that, I'd be curious. I don't know. If they, well, I mean, uh, you know what what feeds one. It, you can you only have a certain amount of public money, and you got to give it to one or the other. And they're sort of competing for, you know, just like uh, populations of. And an ecosystem. I don't know. I just uh, we can just ecosystem. Ecosystems don't have politics. They're just they're you know they're just they're just like these natural systems that you know have these cycles. You know the water cycle, they, the nutrient cycle, the soil cycle. The animals eat each other. They have parasites and whatever. But but uh, but our cities are, you know, inherently have embedded in them ideologies and values about how things should be and who should decide, and there's deep contestation over that. So I I tend to shy away from more of an ecological explanation and think of it more in terms of of just sort of uh, a very material politics, and I'm interested in the you know, and how that uh, how that's well, playing out. Just as a last thought about that, though, uh, you know, it, it, ecosystems may not have politics, but they do have economics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, look, I'm just getting started and theorizing. I've <laughs> written a whole book about it. But um, anything else you'd like to say? I feel like we're sort of in the last uh, lapse here. Well, um, I mean... I, I, uh, you know, I, again, I, I, I see a lot of potential in Los Angeles, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not as close, I'm not on the ground there, I don't know what your, your various debates are in terms of street by street, but just from looking at it, it just seems like it's a, it's a no-brainer. Well, like right now, we have something called the Hyperion project where they wanted to take this bridge that that you know it connects Atwater and uh I guess Los Feliz or you know the, the local communities here and turn it into basically a fifty five mile an hour uh highway kind of a thing because it would get federal money. Yeah. If they do it. They're they're eligible for federal money. And it's been a huge battle with uh and then there's another battle on Figueroa where, you know, they wanted to make a, a cycle lane a cycle track, and then the the car company. I mean, the the car business. The car dealers. Is, I saw that. I saw an article about that. Yeah. So we do have the fight, like just everywhere. Yeah. You know, ongoing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's fight by fight, but you know, maybe if we were to 
unify somehow more effectively and and get our arguments straight, you know, get the winning arguments together. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, we, we do a little bit about that on Global Bike Talk with Kevin Main from the European Cyclist Federation. Like, he'll say, these are the kinds mm-hmm. of things that you need to say, you know. You need to talk mm-hmm. this way to these people. And I wonder if all of our bike groups are really uh, synchronized in that way. Mm-hmm. To, 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 to know what the most effective arguments that people are using around the world for bike advocacy are. Well, I, I mean, I think to that point, the, 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 the California Bike Coalition, uh, I think they spend a lot of time kind of thinking about some of these issues and they, I missed their most recent summit, which was up here in Oakland, but it was in November, but I believe that was on, you know, that was one of the themes. And then I, I think the, the League of American Cyclists is also trying to grapple with that issue of, you know, how to how to move beyond just being seen as, you know, spandex or eccentric and, you know, show day, practical, inexpensive, socially just mode of transportation. So I think that there's I think there's people really ad- addressing that. Uh, I mean, not necessarily offering the magic bullet, the silver bullet, but but talking about this stuff and and so uh you know I'm optimistic that we're gonna see uh maybe maybe some better articulation of just exactly what the benefits of a bike oriented city can be. All right. Well and so I hope that this is a step in that direction, you know, this conversation okay. is having. I mean, it is. So, what a great stopping point. Thank you. Okay. okay. For, uh, for this interview. All right. Well, I hope it helps. And uh, feel free to be in touch. And, um, you know, if you have the chance, I would encourage you to look up Street Fight. I will. I absolutely will. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS feed link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group.